Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. is Arsecast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gun and Blog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning to you too. It is just about there, isn't it? Peeping through the clouds. Yeah. The goodly morning. It is. Apart from the fact I'm absolutely knackered because I didn't really sleep very well last night and everything feels weird and surreal, like the world around me isn't quite isn't quite there. I don't know how to describe it. You, you know that sensation you get where you don't sleep well? You're. I don't know, anyway. Did you have bad dreams? Didn't really have bad dreams because no. I didn't really sleep. I did have one sure. dream where I went back to college, but then there was a guy just puking and shitting all over the floor and I had to mm. step around his mess. But <laughs> beyond that, no, I wouldn't say they were particularly bad. There just right. you know, wasn't enough sleep. So There weren't enough of them, if anything. Yeah. You wanted more bad dreams, because yeah. at least you would have been asleep. Exactly, exactly. But look, I will do my best to power through this particular podcast, um, which has come after a, a good win over Southampton. And uh, yeah, plenty to get into. And that's all there is to talk about. Sh- shall I make a suggestion? Go on. My suggestion is, shall we park the Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang discussion until part two? Because there are a lot of questions about that. Yes, let's. let's we talk about it. the game? Let's talk about the we'll, game. Then yeah. we'll get to that. Okay, cool. Because yeah, we couldn't really not get to it. It's just when question of when. So let's let's do the game and all the associated bits and pieces with regards to that. Starting lineup, no Aubameyang, obviously, but mm. it was the exact same team that played against Everton, that started against Everton. Mm. And I, I have to admit, I was a little bit concerned about that. I, I sort of sent you a kind of, hmm? Hmm? Text yeah, message. Yeah. Bit of a, Absolutely. Hmm? And you said, oh, maybe sort of giving them a go, a chance to redeem themselves kind of a vibe, which... Yeah. I guess that's what it was. Well, I, I I only said that because I think there's a bit of precedent. I think he did that after Anfield, didn't he? he kept the same team um, and, you know, famously played Nuno and mm. that guy called Albert Sambi Laconga, who's disappeared, I think, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> since then. Him and Ainsley Maitland-Niles kept in a cupboard somewhere these days. But um, I, I think that when he feels they haven't delivered it's not that unusual for him to give them another opportunity. Nevertheless, I was a little bit surprised. Uh, I thought there might be a couple of changes. Mainly, I thought Mill Smith-Rowe 
might be in the starting eleven because mm. the suggestion in the press conference had been, you know, that he had a, a decent chance. But obviously, um, just on the substitutes bench. And other than that, uh, I don't know where I expected the changes. I guess maybe I thought Aubameyang might come in. Obviously, he didn't or couldn't. Well, yeah, but we knew that sort of beforehand because it had emerged the day before. We didn't quite know why, but we knew he wasn't going to be there. And I if <laughs> I thought Eddie Enkedia might start. Oh, yes, front, he did, yeah. To be honest, yeah. uh, given how uh, Mikel Arteta spoke about him in his press conference and spoke about the impact he had in the game against Everton um, and, and everything else. So, yeah, that's kind of where I thought it would be. But obviously, when you don't have Aubameyang, it's a straight choice then between Lacazette and Enkedia, and I think he just went for the experienced option. Yeah, I think so. Although you have to say, in those opening exchanges, um, you know, it wasn't just the lineup that was familiar; the performance was too. Mm. I mean, Arsenal really struggled in those opening minutes. Yeah, I, I, I was really worried actually after about 15 minutes I think I said on the live blog I've got a bad feeling about this game and I hope I'm wrong and I'm delighted that I was but it it wasn't a good start was it it was one of those where you're looking at the team thinking okay you guys have been given another chance he's given you some some faith and this is what we're getting I mean Southampton Mm -hmm. we know they like to press high that is what they do we can't have been unaware that this is how they were going to play. And I don't think we coped particularly well with it until, you know, we did and scored a a really superb goal. But until that point, it was quite worrying, wasn't it, that we didn't really seem to be at the races? Yeah, it's interesting. I think there are things about the way Southampton play that suit Arsenal to an extent. But I think at the start of the game... They look. We looked. We looked very short on confidence, and I think when that's the case, you probably do just want that extra bit of time on the ball, and mm. that is the one thing you don't get against Southampton. Um, and I thought that led to a kind of uh, skittishness, sloppiness in possession that mm. they probably should have capitalised on. I mean, that was a very good spell for them. Apparently, this is a problem they have. They have they create plenty of chances, but having lost Danny Ings, they're not clinical and they're frequently punished for not taking those moments in games. Mm. And it, it played out the same for them at the Emirates Stadium. Yeah, and look, there were some, some worrying signs as well. I think Gabriel got booked really early yes, on. Um, to his credit, he coped very well with that uh, for the rest of the game. But there was also a, a really iffy pass from him a few minutes yeah, later. So yeah. I was thinking, oh, he really needs to settle down. You know, could could they take advantage? I think they, they had a couple of shots, didn't they? And Ramsdale, I think, made one very good save um, down from at From Armstrong near at the near yeah. post, yeah. And there was a couple of... Uh, there was a free kick, a couple of free kicks, James Ward-Prowse... Mm. Um, uh, there, there, there were a few scary moments. Shaka looked very rusty as well, didn't he? I mean, I, mean, I think Shaka looked yeah. more rusty in this game than he did in the Everton game. Yes, I mean, talking about changes to the starting eleven, perhaps we should have mm. mentioned him as a possibility, having played as long as he did on uh, Monday night. Um, yeah, he, he looked very rusty and he conceded possession uh, an unusual amount for mm. him in that first half. So... Uh, yeah, I didn't think he was having a great time of it. I, it. It was interesting. I mean, Southampton, they really commit to that press. Um, 
and it, it was relatively effective for them in that opening period. But the goal that we scored, it was sort of like the perfect medicine, really, for the team. Not only in that it was kind of reward for persisting with the approach in terms of paying out mm. the back, but I think the manner in which it came off uh, must have provided a real injection of confidence for a team who probably desperately needed it at that point. Absolutely. I mean, look, I think it's worth pointing out that the the two previous games certainly informed the opening uh, part of this game in terms of our performance. You know, Uh, we can maybe talk about that a little bit, but I think when you lose two games that you shouldn't lose, and, you know, that's part of why those last couple of games are so frustrating because we shouldn't have come away from Manchester United and Everton with zero points, but we did. And I think that did feed into those opening 20 minutes um, mm. and some of the, the decisions that we made. But when we sparked into life, it was really impressive. I mean, that's a that's a beautiful goal. I was taken to task uh, for calling it a counter-attacking goal on the blog, which it isn't, because we had possession. What was interesting about it was not long, maybe the phase of play before this goal, we were trying to play it out from the back as well. And I think Ramsdale ended up lumping it downfield. Southampton got a throw and, and um, moved it back upfield, which we took possession again. But there was no question of going long this time um Mm. we were sort of crowded out a little bit in in the initial phase but on that second phase the precision of the passing was superb but the pace of those passes is what made the difference and how many times have we spoken on this podcast about the gentle rolling of the ball to to the man outside you to the nearest guy you know what i mean where Mm. it just allows the opposition to close you down And Southampton really, really tried to stop us, uh, to stop us getting out. They were chasing, they were pressing high up the pitch. We played around the press. I mean, the precision passing and the one I think that strikes me in particular is the one from Thomas Partey to Tommy Asu, where he really pings it out to the right back um, as Southampton. You know, that's the pass that really gets us out. Um, So, I, you know, there's so much to like about that and the way that we then... um, I mean, we made it look very simple. James Ward-Prowse is is a very, very good set piece taker, but man alive, he's he's so slow, isn't he? He's so <laughs> yeah. slow because, like Saka, I was going, oh, well, I wonder will Saka be able to get away here? And Saka, I don't think he really like put the burners on or anything. He just continued running, um, and Ward-Prowse couldn't get anywhere near him. Yeah, I mean, you know, there've been slow midfield players in the past. You think of Michael Carrick who've made good careers for themselves. Uh, but I guess that might be why James Ward-Prowse, despite his substantial technical quality, is still at Southampton. I guess, you know, he's, he's not a perfectly rounded player by mm. any means. I think you're right about the the quality of the passing, the really nice ball from Thomas Partey out from the back, who I think quietly had an improved game, actually, uh, in this one. I agree. Did you think... I yeah. agree. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he was brilliant, but I saw signs that maybe he's just beginning to find a little bit of confidence. Some of the passing, some of the mm. movement, uh, his involvement. Um, I didn't look at the stats exactly, but 
just with my eyes, I felt like this was a uh, there were signs of improvement from him. Yeah, certainly in the second half as well, where I think yeah. he 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 became a bit more influential. Um, I mean, there's a way I to think go. It was but, the passing. Yeah. yeah, I think it was. You know, there were a few of these sort of forward balls in the first half. He was dropping in almost between the centre backs to help us play out. Does so on the, on this goal very well. I actually think Tommy Asu. Um, does really well as well. I think mm-hmm. he's involved twice, a couple of passes. First one, really crisp. Perhaps it's into Odegaard. Um, I mean, this was kind of, you know, we spoke, <laughs> was it after the Everton game about the mousetrap goal, the, the Goldilocks goal, mm. you know, where everything is inch perfect. And this was the perfect execution of that. Yeah. Um, and in, in that's what I mean about some of what Southampton do slightly suiting Arsenal. I think when teams sit off in a low block and defend deep, I think we, we do struggle to break them down. When they press uh, and we have the confidence to stick to mm. what we're doing, which I'm not sure we always have done. You know, I think particularly away from home, the plan can go out the window a little bit uh, when we're under pressure. But with the home crowd, we stuck at it. And it, it paid off here. Just a beautiful goal. And yeah. I think that kind of finish is, is always satisfying, right? Side <laughs> yeah. foot into the top corner. Yeah, it looks yeah. beautiful. It's a great finish as well from, from Lacazette. He's in the box, um, which, you know, sure. he, he has... Not the six-yard box. It, 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 it paid off for him, finally, not being able to get into the six-yard box. <laughs> but look, you know, I, I think there's two two things you can say about this goal. One, it is absolutely beautiful and you can watch it over and over again and, and the patterns and the precision and the finish and all of it is just fantastic what i would say is like i don't know do you do you have any concerns that that kind of a goal um as aesthetically pleasing as it is requires you to play in a is it high risk to invite the opposition onto you i mean ramsdale stands there with the ball for a while you know, that kind of thing, rather than being a bit more proactive in terms of how you play? Or is that the kind of sucker punch football that Mikel Arteta wants his team to play? I mean, there, there will come a point, like, if you keep doing this, the opposition just aren't going to come forward. They're going to sit there and, and you know, let you try and come at them when they've got men behind the ball, as we saw in, was it the Watford game, you know? Yeah, and I think... I think this goal has much more, and that style of play is much more informed by the opposition than anything else. I mean, Southampton were always going to do this. We we had a conversation last week about does having a style make you good, essentially. Mm. And Southampton are kind of proof, in a way, not really. Like, they have a very clear style, and in some ways it helps them, but in other ways it doesn't. And I think if you think about the goals Arsenal scored this season that have been like this, I mean, the goals we scored against Tottenham, for example, were, again, the consequence of Spurs pressing and committing very high. So I don't think this is something you can do in every game. I don't think you can expect this to Mm. always work because, as you're suggesting, in general, opposition are going to be wise to it. And I think we've actually seen that against United, against Everton. You know, one of the things that disappeared from our game that was maybe back a little bit more today was, um, you know, good balls between the lines from from Ramsdale or White or Gabriel. And I think that's because people were looking at the goals we were scoring, looking at the way we advanced, the territory we made mm. and saying, well, if we commit, if we put people in their half, they've got guys who can slice through. And, and we haven't had the opportunity to do that. Southampton, 
I think although their uh, uh, approach was very aggressive and almost paid dividends for them in that early stages because our confidence looked so brittle, actually it, it kind of plays into our tactical hand and, and what it doesn't, what we don't know yet and what, well, what we do know and what we're trying to improve is how would we have broken them down if they hadn't pressed us like that? Yeah. I think that's um, that's the remaining concern. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair concern. But we did score again very quickly. I mean, a, yeah. it was quite a fortuitous goal. There are a few things that I noticed <laughs> in this where, one, I thought Tommy Asu had run the ball out of play. Um, I thought it looked like a Southampton throw to me. Then yeah. Granit Xhaka lost the ball a couple of times in midfield and got it back within a couple of seconds. Um, and we moved the ball on from there. Tierney, of course, uh, had a couple of bites at the cherry, different kinds the dummy, of cherries. The, yeah. The, the, <laughs> yeah. The superb dummy to yeah, bring yeah, the yeah. ball under his control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, heading it back across for, for Martin Odegaard. I'm just watching again. Yep. Oh, look at that. Oh, and it comes back to him, heads it. There was a lovely piece in here as well from, uh, I don't know if you uh, noticed, but Martinelli just got himself between yeah. uh, Odegaard and the defender just to kind of do a little bit of NFL-style blocking off. But it's a really smart play from Martinelli, that. I mean, it's a, it's a good header from Odegaard, who's now got, what, three and three? So this is what we're looking for from a player of, of his stature. Uh, goals from midfield are really, really welcome. If we could just add some goals from our strikers on a more consistent basis, we'd probably be in better shape. But uh, really smart from Martinelli, who I thought had a good game as, uh, again as well. Yeah, Martinelli had a really good game. Um, and I think, you know, we we I'm delighted that Odegaard scored again. Mm. I had a feeling, bizarrely enough, that he would. He's just sort of... Uh, you know, it's like he's sort of started smelling goals a mm. bit more on the pitch. And he, it's the positions that he's taken up that he's being rewarded for. This was the first headed goal of his career, he said after yeah, the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's four for the season in the Premier League for him. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's actually probably quite a while since we had a midfielder with four Premier League goals. Well, <laughs> certainly, as, we've got, you know, certainly as far as I can remember. Yeah, well, we've got Smith Rowe on five, who you sure, categorise sure. as a midfielder. And I think, you know, to put Odegaard's in perspective, that is as many as Aubameyang this season in the Premier League. Um, yeah. You know, so it's, it's a really good return from him. And I do think that there are... I don't know that him getting into the positions is necessarily new. I think the efficiency of his finishing is improved because, you know, from the from the moment he came into the team, he had chances to score. I think he was at times a little bit wasteful last season. I think he probably should have scored more goals for us last season, but there were positions where he got in and didn't quite hit the target. Um, and what we're seeing now is uh, a, a player who is feeling more confident in front of goal. I think after we go 2-0 up, we probably should go 3-0 up. There was a break with Lacazette, wasn't there? A three-on-one break that we didn't make the most of mm -hmm. uh, at all. But, you know, that position that we got ourselves into then allowed us to um, to really dominate that second half. Is there anything else from the first half that we need to talk about? Because... Uh, uh, not especially. I mean, you know, Lacazette had oh, that Oh, there moment. is. There's one thing we have to talk about. Ramsdale's kick to Gabriel Martinelli uh, right at the end of the first half. I mean, yeah. oh, sensational. It's a shame that didn't, that didn't result in a goal. There were a couple <laughs> of moments in that first half where I think if we'd pulled the trigger a little bit sooner, 
we might have scored again. You know, I think Lacazette had yeah. one apart from the break. There was another one where he might have uh, had a shot. Sort of dribbled into the yeah, box and exactly, never took yeah. a shot. Martinelli maybe could have got, yeah, Martinelli could have got his shot away a little bit quicker, but an amazing pass from, from Aaron Ramsdale. There's a great shot of Ramsdale's face after uh, Martinelli doesn't quite manage to, to get it away. And yeah, you can see how thrilled he would have been with the assist. Oh, I, I like yeah, that yeah, because... Yeah. Yeah, he's all, his hands on his head. But I think um, what was interesting about that, he came and took the corner and there was three or four Arsenal players immediately break into space. And there was almost a second's hesitation where it's like, oh, you could have thrown it then, we could have been away. But obviously he'd seen Martinelli sprinting away into the distance. And it's a, it's a brilliant kick. And actually, I thought... Um, his kicking game was very good on the day and, and, and it was a nervous crowd, you know, early mm. on, particularly in that early spell. And I, I touched on this briefly a moment ago, but I do think that it does take courage and conviction to stick to the principles in those moments. And I'm not sure we've always done that this season. And I think it's very positive that we did today and, and Ramsdale was a big part of that. Yeah, he was. He was. I mean, I think I said at halftime he was our best outfield player, um, <laughs> which tells yeah. you just how much he was involved um, and everything else. So look, second half, like I really, really liked that second half, mm-hmm. I have to say. It was like a throwback to when we used to have a lead and we would attack teams and we would play in a way which put them on the back foot, which meant they couldn't really... Uh, threaten us too much. I mean, Ramsdale did have to make saves in this game and also in the second half he had to make saves but there was so much to like about the way that we played, the intent with which we played. Uh, Gabriel had a goal disallowed, then scored the header. Um, Martinelli with an assist for that. Martinelli hit the post. Saka hit the post. Uh, There was a... uh, Yeah, I just really, really liked that second half and I know there was a lot of well, it's just Southampton and well, they're 16th and they're not very good but you know we've just seen Arsenal lose to Everton who can't be anyone apart from Arsenal and Manchester United who we should have been you know capable of taking something from that game and I look at games like this as the ones where you know this is when you should be able to do this this is exactly the kind of fixture at home with a lead crowd is up for it you should be able to even though you're winning a game comfortably press on and try and score more and just be a little more expressive in the way that you play. So the fact that Southampton aren't that good this season, that's exactly why we should have been able to do what we did, in my opinion. Anyway, Yeah, I think that's right. I think the second half was the most um, effective attacking display since the Aston Villa game, probably. Um, in fact, definitely, I suspect. And I thought we were unlucky in some respects not to score more than we did. Um, it, it, we maintained the intensity, maintained the pressure. I think that the, I think we were slight. I think we were fortuitous to be two goals up at half time. I thought that was a little flattering at that point, but by full time, I didn't think three 0 was flattering. Actually, I thought that on the ba- on the balance of that second half, uh, we could really have smashed them. I do find it interesting that. Ramsdale continues to have to make quite as many saves per game as he mm. does. Um, and I do think it, it, it's, I, I feel conflicted about it because on the one hand, we are keeping a lot of clean sheets. Um, I think he now has seven in 13 league games, which is a pretty good mm. 
uh, record. But in a lot of those clean sheet games, he is making He's busy, you know, five or yeah. six saves. Now, in a way, that's what you want from your goalkeeper. Great. Um, and a goalie's always going to have to make saves. But I, I, and I'm not sure how high quality some of these chances are. But it is something to keep an eye on. He's he's one of the busier goalkeepers uh, in the division mm. in that respect. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, there is a kind of... And also there is a kind of um, duality to this Arsenal team that I think this game sort of demonstrates. I mean, you make the point that Southampton aren't one of the strongest sides in the team and, you know, people say, oh, it's only Southampton. But I can remember plenty of previous years where Arsenal have drop points in these kind of very winnable home games. It strikes me there's something odd where when it comes, particularly at home, the games that you would expect them to win, generally they do. And generally they keep the clean sheet. Um, And uh, when they go away or they face a higher quality of opposition, they struggle. It's like the results, in some sense we say they're unpredictable, but I sort of feel like actually we're sort of weirdly predictable at the moment in terms of how we fare against different calibre of opposition. Yeah, I mean, that's... that's. I mean, they... they, I mean, I really liked so much of what we did on Saturday after that opening 20 minutes. Like, really Mm. liked it. I thought the manager's substitutions were... It's like chalk and cheese compared to the ones against Everton. Gabriel is on a yellow card. Take him off. Very sensible. Granite Xhaka, you know, I think you could have given Sambi 20 minutes rather than 10 minutes, but still take Granite Xhaka off because, you know, he he was rusty. And uh, if, if there's any player in this team who makes Rusty look super rusty. It's it's Granite Xhaka because of the style. You know, he's a s- slow guy and what have you. He looks a bit ponderous at the best of times. Sure. So, you know, that was a sensible enough one. What was the final sub? Nicolas Pepe. It was Pepe. He's alive. Pepe. He's alive. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I, th- I liked a lot about it. And I, I find myself in this weird place where United and Everton were so frustrating. So frustrating. And you look at Everton losing to Crystal Palace yesterday and we handed them three points on a plate and that frustration is is hard to ignore and I don't think you should ignore it because like you say I think there is an issue with certain games particularly away from home but then we go and do this and I look at the players and I look at the way they play and I look at the way they celebrate the the there appears to be a nice togetherness in this squad. They seem like a good bunch of lads. I like them. Mm. And I'm like, I'm not being pulled from pillar to post, but you know what I mean? I'm trying not to sway too wildly from one thing to another, but they keep doing things which make me (laughs) having to, like I'm going around in fucking circles. You know what I mean? And I think they, I think they will continue to, I mean, I tweeted after the game, sort of set back, bounce back, and I think we'll have that pattern multiple times yeah. over the course of the season, and it may be something we have to get slightly used to. I, I, I know exactly what you mean, because something I felt that happened after the United and Everton games, which I completely understand, is that um, the sort of high... I think I think collectively as a fan base we forget that this season the high notes and the good moments I think have actually felt particularly good in some respects like maybe it's because we like the group or because we see potential or because they're young players when it's worked 
I think we've loved it more than we have done in previous years. Mm. And I think we've been more excited about it. Um, and I think that that is naturally overlooked when things get tougher and old questions reemerge and the performance, you know, isn't what we expect. Uh, something I also think is interesting in the kind of chat around it is I do think we are seeing a real difference between home and away. And I wonder if in the kind of pandemic period, did we stop really factoring that in our thoughts, in our considerations, in our analysis? Like, yeah. I, I, I feel like... Um, I feel like it feels much more pronounced, certainly, now that crowds are back. I think when we go away, our composure is substantially worse than it is at home. Well, I mean, we are, if you look at the, if you look at the home form or the home table, yeah. uh, we're, we're second. Well, you know, right. we're, we've 19 points from our eight home games this season, uh, same as Manchester City, with 15 goals scored, uh, and only six against, right? Yeah. So that's us second. Liverpool have 18 points, Spurs have 18 points, Chelsea 17, then you go down to West Ham 14. Yeah. Um, so when you go to the away form, whoa, we're right down in 11th um, yeah. with two wins from eight, one draw and five defeats, six goals scored and 16 conceded. It's, it's the now, complete inverse. It is respects. a little bit. Now, I think you have to acknowledge that we've played Man City away, we've played Liverpool away, we've played Manchester United away. Yeah. So there are some big fixtures in that group. Nevertheless, there is a, a fairly substantial difference between that. And I don't quite know how you, you address that. You know, there isn't really anything about the preparation or the environment that should have that marked difference on your performance levels or, or your ability to get results. This isn't like, you know, the, the, the first division in 1980 when you would go away and the pitch was like a swamp and all of that kind of stuff. You can't play your super passing football because, you know, all the pitches are good these days for the most part. You know, we do have some Burnley-esque shenanigans every now and again where they let the grass grow to knee height and it, mm. it becomes a little bit difficult. So I don't quite know what it is beyond some sort of of psychological thing because you could look yeah. at the United game and you could look at the Everton game and say, look, I am as frustrated as anybody by those results. But in terms of, if not necessarily the quality of the performances, because I th I, we made mistakes, obviously, but the, the level of the teams, there's nothing to say uh, or to explain why we couldn't have gone there and taken something from both of those games beyond maybe having this issue now that could become more pronounced where we feel like going away is a is a problem or is a difficulty and that's something we're going to have to get over yeah and for balance it's worth saying that because we've had those hard away games uh, the home fixtures have generally been quite favourable. You know, we, mm. we're yet to play Man City, Liverpool, um, United at the Emirates. Um, in fairness, we've had the North London derby there. Chelsea. We won that. Uh, Chelsea, we, we lost, of mm. course. Um, it's going to be a really interesting game on Wednesday against West Ham. I, I do just think there is something in this idea of our struggle to retain our composure away from home. I think of that Leicester game, which I think we all reflect on pretty fondly, but 
I was there that day and in the first half, Arsenal were playing some absolutely terrific stuff and a lot of that was based on what they were doing out of the back. But but there was a moment where that game did swing somewhat and it was that that instance where Aaron Ramsdale his clearance went to Ian Acho and mm. Ian Acho had a shot and Ramsdale had to make a very good save. And I it's not exaggeration to say that from that point on the way in which Arsenal built up the play was very different, that they they did slightly abandon what they were doing. And mm. I think the consequence of that was the second half where we were under enormous pressure and the clean sheet really was down to well, yeah. a, a goalkeeping performance. Sure. We did make a change. I remember that game where we did make a change in that second half. I think it was Martin Odegaard came on for Alexander Lacazette. Yeah. And we had a bit more control from that period on, but you're certainly right to say there was, yeah, whether that gave us the heebie-jeebies, I don't quite know. Uh, Ramsdale giving the ball I, away to Ian Acho, but... I, I, I get the sense that that this team do get the heebie-jeebies a little bit. And it, I think it happens... I think it's interesting that it didn't really happen at Southampton, against Southampton, when they were having an absolute nightmare in that first 15 minutes playing mm. out from the back. They were able to stick at it. I think in a hostile environment, for me... They're, they're less able to sustain that. And I think that probably is related to experience. But um, it's something to keep an eye on, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we scored another goal in this half, by the way, we should talk about. We did mention it. We did. I did, oh, yeah. I did say Gabriel scored. Um, he nearly scored twice. Do you yeah. think his teammates knew that he was having a baby? I don't know. I mean, I saw Lacazette's yeah. reaction when he picked up the ball and stuck it under his shirt, like, and it was a bit like, oh my God. Good I think you, maybe man. some knew, some didn't. Because yeah. Lacazette seemed legitimately surprised. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what I mean but, about those kind of, those moments. Uh, that was yeah, a really sure. nice moment and they're all celebrating together and he looks, you know, delighted with himself for the goal and for his, you know, his happy news domestically and everyone seemed happy for him. This is what I mean about this group of players being quite a likeable group, you know? For sure. Um, and I really want them to do well. I want them to succeed. I, I you know, um, which, you know, kind of goes what I'd say. Um, but yeah, I think maybe... <laughs> yeah, it'd, be, it'd be weird if you did. It would sure. be weird, of course. Um, but yeah, look, it was it was uh, a goal I think he deserved. Um, He's becoming a real threat, isn't he, if, from those situations? Well, I mean, how many set-piece goals is that now? Five or six set-piece goals mm. this season? I don't quite know, but... but uh, you know, we have Martinelli this time with the delivery, very good delivery. I think that's an interesting development. Martinelli, Martinelli taking, taking set pieces. Yeah, it it suggests just something to me that there is a, you know, people have been a bit unsure about him, um, and and where he stands and how much he's going to be involved and, you know, since he came on in the game against Watford, was it mm -hmm. Watford where he scored the goal? It was. Yeah. Or Newcastle. Oh, was it Newcastle? Newcastle, sorry. Yeah, sorry. One Newcastle. of those bad yeah. teams. Yeah, I mean, since he's come on, uh, since he came on in that g uh, game, I think he's been really good. I think he's had a, a, a positive impact. He looks a bit more secure in possession and on the ball. I think one of the things that is um, doesn't get spoken about is his defensive work, which he uh, he really did well in that opening 15, 20 minutes. He made um, more tackles than any other Arsenal player. Well, the there game. you go. There you go. Yeah, you know, so agreed. he's combining that with some threat as well up front. There are a couple of moments where, you know, we talked about the Ramsdale one. I think the the 
the Lacazette break where he tried to play it into him. He was in a great position to score a goal. There was another one maybe when... Hit the post with a brilliant the, effort. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, lovely box. curler. But there was another one where I think it could have been Saka who had a shot. I can't quite remember. Martinelli was sort of there with his arms out looking for the pass. Um, another one where we might have, you know, extended the lead. So, look, really positive signs. And the... What did you call it earlier? Setback response. Oh, setback bounce back. Set, yeah. Setback, yeah. I mean, I think that we're we're having to consider that a bit too often. Um, you know, how are we going to respond to this? How is this Arsenal team going to respond to that? But we generally seem to be able to respond quite well. I mean, I don't think we responded well at Everton to the Manchester United setback, but the setback of the two away games. You know, yeah. if we can beat West Ham on, on Wednesday, then that's a very good response until our next setback, whenever that is, could be could be Leeds. Yeah, exactly. I, I, to, to be honest, uh, after the, in the immediate aftermath of the Everton game, I said to a few people... Said I it on Arsenal, here. Did I? Yeah, I said I think so, they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll be, um, beat Southampton, beat West Ham and lose to Leeds. I do think that um, at the moment, Home advantage weighs very heavily for them, and they they and they are you know at a place where that is going to happen. I mean, hopefully, I'm wrong. Hopefully, they yeah, win all yeah, three yeah. games. I mean, any sort of result against West Ham would be a really significant uh, mm. result, right? Because I think um, I actually think West Ham coming away from the Emirates with something would be quite uh, would be such a boost to them. Because, mm. you know, they can go to Man City and lose and that's all right, you know. But when they're looking at their season and they're looking at where they want to get to and where they want to be, they're really looking at like us and United, teams like that, mm. and thinking, you know, if we can if we can go away to them and take a point or whatever, they'll be over the moon. So I think it'd be great to really put a dent in that. Yeah, exactly. Well. I mean, West Ham are, are a team that are going to be fighting for a place that we want in 100%. this league this season. So these are not quite six pointers, but it'd be it'd be quite a psychological win as well as a, a a regular win to go above them in the table with a win on Wednesday night, you know. Um particularly as we passed up the chance to do that in the previous two away games, you know? Yeah. Just to sort yeah, of say, they, they might have felt like, oh, look, they've lost a couple of away games. We've got a bit of breathing room here. And then all of a sudden we're ahead of them in the table. Things like that, they're intangible, but they do make a bit of a difference. So it's a big, big game on Wednesday. It is. It's high pressure. And my slight worry about this team, much as I like them, is that pressure can kind of be kryptonite mm. for them, you know? I mean, uh, Old Trafford was a pressure game. Everton was a pressure game. Anfield is a pressure game. I think pressure in every respect is bad for this team. When it's very intense uh, pressing, like we saw Southampton produce in that first 10 minutes, or we saw Liverpool do at times, that kind of pressure is a problem. And I think psychological pressure is a problem too. And mm. we need to get over those two things. Um West Ham would be a good opportunity to take a step in that direction. Yeah, okay. Well, look, we will obviously talk about the West Ham game and the build-up to that over on Patreon. We'll have a preview podcast, and we will be doing this week an extra Arsecast Extra on Thursday. Yeah. So we will talk about that. That will probably come in place of Friday's 
regular arse cast, but we'll see what happens there. But we will have uh, all the reaction to the West Ham game on Thursday morning. Right. Let's take a little break here. When we come back, there's plenty to uh, talk about when we get into the questions, not least the Aubameyang situation. So we'll take a break and your questions and more in part two right after this. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog and also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. I think we've got to start the second half of this uh, podcast with the Aubameyang situation. I want to leave... The question, I've got a question, I suppose, which is one of the um, the big pressing issues around this. I want to leave that for a minute. Just let's talk briefly about what happened mm-hmm. and how it became public, because I think those are the two things which are exercising people. So you and David uh, Ornstein wrote a big piece in The Athletic today, uh, which people can obviously go and read if they're subscribers or they can subscribe. But do you want to give the cliff notes on on what exactly yeah. uh, transpired and why he was then uh, omitted from the squad? So obviously, as we all know, on before the game on Saturday, Arteta in his interview with... I think it was Sky or the Premier League, you know, said that he would be, uh, Bemi had been left out for a disciplinary breach. Breach was his wording. And obviously it sparks uh, panic in the media room as everyone scrabbles to try and find out what's going on. Um, he didn't really go into any further detail after the game at all. I think the win obviously permitted him in some respects to do that. What we've reported today. Uh, as our understanding of events is that Aubameyang last week asked for permission to return to France. Um, the intention was to visit his mother and bring her back with him to uh, the UK. Mm. And he was granted permission to do so on the condition that he returned to England on Wednesday. Um, this was so he could take part in training on Thursday I mean, you know, basically Thursday and Friday, if you've got a Saturday game, they're the most important training sessions. So mm. I guess that's why the emphasis is, is on that. Um, Aubameyang did not return on Wednesday, as agreed. He instead flew back very early on Thursday morning. I believe he did 
arrive at the training ground in time for training but as a consequence of his late return there were other complications relating to the covid protocols um that were problematic mm. essentially he had undertaken a test permitting him to leave france and return to the uk um which he thought would be sufficient but under the rules in england he also has to take a test upon return and so there were COVID protocol related uh, complications. It's interesting. Arsenal's perspective is very much that that is sort of secondary. Ultimately, he had an agreement that he would return on Wednesday. He didn't. And consequently, he was asked uh, not to come to training on Friday and told he would not be involved in, at the weekend. And at, at this point, we're speaking Monday morning, mm. that is the extent of it as far as I know. And I don't know how long uh, this will endure. He might well be back in training today. They didn't train yesterday, Sunday. They had a day off, the group. So who knows? But that's what happened. Right. So so I guess, have you got a question or or should we just chat about that? I, I think we probably just need to chat about it because there are, the question is more specific about what happens Next. Next, right. Um, so, what's your reaction? I guess based on what you um, heard about it publicly, and then seeing the the detail of it, what's your immediate response to it? Well, it's one of those where I think if the club have been really accommodating to him to allow him to travel at a time when I think you know it would probably be more sensible not to. Um, mm-hmm. You know, not forgetting as well that he's going to be going to the to the Afcon at the end of this month anyway, or or yeah. early in January. I do think he has a responsibility, not simply as club captain, but as any professional to to return uh, at the agreed time, as agreed, yeah. as agreed. And if there are complications arising from his late return due to the COVID protocols, then it's even more important that he came back on time. So I I don't think it's the first time that timekeeping, if you want to call this a timekeeping issue, I'm not 100% sure. Maybe there's some stuff that went on over there that, you know, we, we don't know about yet, whatever it might be. But I think, look, it's a really difficult one to say that, that um, if he was back late, then disciplinary action is not an unreasonable response to that. The question then is, like, should we have made it public? Should it have played out in public the way that it did? And this is where I'm a little bit I'm a little bit torn on it, but I think it would have come out anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So I, my, my sense is, like, it might be Arteta wanting to be strict or disciplinarian as you know managers can be and you know we've had uh george graham was a, a huge disciplinarian when he was manager i just think that the world that we live in right now with social media with with channels of communication and back channels here there and everywhere this would have come out like the real reason would have come out. So if Arteta went on TV and said there's no Aubameyang, why is that well it's it's he's unwell or he's injured, I think that would have been shown to be a fib, you know? Um, 
and the people you know people are saying well he shouldn't have done it that way would be saying well look he lied to us you know so i think there's a question of getting out in front of it more than anything else it's a really interesting one that yeah because i think i think in the past you know I, I reckon there are countless occasions where Arsene Wenger oh, yeah. said somebody was ill or had a bad back or, you know, but he was very staunchly um, protective of players. Uh, some would say almost to a fault at times. Mm-hmm. Um, I do wonder as well about the ethics in the current climate, the ethics of saying someone's ill when they're not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not good, I, actually, is it? I, yeah. I, I'm more complicated right now. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, I do think that, you know, of course you can say, oh, he's got a calf strain or whatever. My sense is that because Arteta didn't want to give more detail, that he felt he he wanted to come out, in front, out up front and put something out there and not divulge any further. Mm. Um, the problem with that is that what that does is it creates speculation. So if you say a player's um, had a disciplinary breach, it could be anything. And I think we saw some pretty wild theories, even in the 24, 48 hours. Aubameyang was here, there and everywhere, according to social media. So that's the danger, isn't it? That if 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 you say half the story people will fill Mm. in the gaps i wonder then why they couldn't have just said it's a disciplinary breach there was a uh, an issue with the covid protocols and as such as would be the case with any player we've asked him to you know sit this one out um i guess it's not the first time it's happened with Aubameyang, which is probably highlighting it a little bit as well. The fact that he's the captain is another side of it too. I mean, there'd be people who say he could just have said personal reasons. Um, But then I suppose if you feel as a manager, you've been accommodating, you've been generous to allow someone to travel um, and given them permission, and then they simply don't turn up or they turn up a day late, whatever it might be, like, I'm not saying it's a, an express challenge to your your authority or anything like that, but it does put you in a position where you kind of have to do something, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of split of opinion, essentially, from the, the different conversations mm. that we've had. You know, there are some who say, you know, Bamiang, it's a, it's a misunderstanding. He, you know, the COVID... Uh, protocols are genuinely quite complex and footballers aren't brilliant at dealing with this stuff. Um, Equally, on the other side of the coin, there are people who say Arsenal have shown flexibility to Aubameyang when required Mm. and even when they bend the rules, he breaks them. Um, You know, I think that the reason that there was such frustration about the issues around punctuality, which are not in themselves massive last season, was that he had been granted uh, a fairly extended period of leave where he he missed three games for personal reasons. And I think they felt that that, while, while they didn't make that begrudgingly, I think they felt that if you make those concessions, the other guy's got to meet you halfway, you know? Um, And I think that's probably behind uh, the irritation here. You know, he was granted permission to miss training under certain terms, didn't agree to those terms. And what's really hard as well is that the context this happens in, it's not just this incident, you know, 
it happens in a wider context where we've been talking about Aubameyang being subbed off or not being brought on. Mm. And so, you know, it, it, it's obviously going to create discussion and speculation and a problem. Yeah, it was quite noticeable, actually. I was um, saying to Andrew Allen, uh, or we were talking between ourselves when we were watching the press conference on Friday, that Mikel Arteta seemed particularly terse, a bit tetchy, you know, like he was annoyed by something. And it might have been, you know, you could look at it and say, well, he's not in a good mood because Arsenal have lost two games and the pressure's on again and here we go again, et cetera, et cetera. But I think this might well have played a part in in Mm -hmm. that, you know. So, like, there was an interesting aside or whatever you want to call it in that Sky interview where where he was asked, you know, w- would it be just one game? And he said... It starts today. He said, it starts say. today. So at this point, we don't know how long he's been told to stay away from training. We don't know no. really, crucially, what Aubameyang's reaction to this is. Like, if it's a case, he said, look, I'm sorry, I hold my hands up, I should have been back, I didn't realise this was going to cause an issue with the COVID tests, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sorry, I'm out of the team, but, you know, here we go from Monday. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm you know, going to work hard. You know, everyone can make a mistake. You know, you're not going to get Absolutely. Uh, hung out to dry completely. So a huge amount of this is going to depend on on him and his response to this, isn't it? Because, like you say, it has come after that incident, an incident at Everton, it's not an incident, but the moment when Eddie Nketiah was put on the field ahead of him, which might be down to his form. You know, little small things like that might be irritating or emasculating or whatever you want to call it. And maybe he's super pissed off now that this has happened and he's been left left out of the team. So, you know, we don't... At this point, we Yeah, at this point, that, you know, we're both speculating, but it's not a huge leap, is it, to be like... Would he be? I think there are lots of questions. Would he be more inclined to have come back in time if he felt better about his standing within the team right now? Would he have been allowed to go if he was going to start on Saturday? I, I don't mm. know. Uh, like all these things are factors. I, I do think, um, as Arsenal fans, though, it's worrying for us because yeah. he's our highest paid player, he's our club captain. And it's it's basically not a great look for anybody right now. No, it isn't. It isn't. Because however you want to justify it, however you want to talk it out and think about it rationally and all that kind of stuff, your captain is being disciplined and left out of the team before, uh, you know, a home game that you really need to win. And we did win and it's great and, and everything else. But, you know, you don't want situations like this. No. You- I mean, uh, to, to touch on what you were just saying, this doesn't have to be that bad. And, you know, inevitably it's sort of a, it's a, it's a sensational story in some respects. Captain's disciplined, left out, sent home from training. But if, like you suggested, Aubameyang is um, contrite and the club feel like we punished him and, you know, we're square, I do think it's, it's possible to kind of move on from this without it being a huge drama. Potentially. Yeah, potentially. But I mean, as we saw with 
you know, I think the the Matteo Genduzzi situation, people talk about that incident with Mope as the um as the reason why he was excluded. Yeah. But I don't think that was it. I think it was to do with the response to the discipline that That's he correct, was, you yeah. know, uh, and look, like uh, we've talked about, there were some other incidents with Ganduzi, and there was a, an opportunity for him to make peace with it or whatever you want to call it, but he didn't. And he was left out of the team and he posted pictures of himself on holiday while Arsenal were winning the FA Cup, etc., etc. So this really does boil down to how Aubameyang responds to this. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's unfortunate or whatever you want to call it that it's come at a time where, you know, perhaps patience with with him isn't at its highest. I think people were very understanding last season when he had that personal issue, when his mother was sick. People mm-hmm. understood that. They understood when his form wasn't great because he had an injury. There was a little skepticism over this idea that he had the flu. Then it turns out he had malaria. You know, yeah. it, it just feels a little bit like there's... Not, not big, big, big things... But just too many things, if you know what I mean. I, I just wonder if if people's patience with um, situations like this are, you know, is that uh, a bit of a low? Yeah, and, and, and he's not scoring goals, ultimately. And yeah. I think that's always going to increase the scrutiny. And, and he is a very... Um, I think he's an interesting character because he is emotional and there is a, there is that correlation I think between his emotional state and the way he plays and they obviously feed into each other um but the the grin has disappeared a little bit recently mm. and to what extent is this going to help or hinder that I mean that that question of kind of man management that hangs over Arteta yeah. is is an interesting one because obviously he has had very public fallouts with certain players. And what's not clear right now is if this is a Genduzi situation or a Meza Ozil situation, or if it's something that's um, another facet of Arteta's management where it's kind of like a bit of carrot, a bit of stick. You know, you almost get the impression with a Bamiang, it's like you have to have boundaries. Arteta feels, rather, mm. that you have to have boundaries um, in order to manage him, that that's part of that process. Yeah. And, and we, we, we're still waiting to find out. But I, what's... what's f- also interesting about it is the timeline because FIFA are adamant, you know, they want people to go off to the AFCON um, shortly after Christmas. So there's only a, there's only about a couple of weeks before we might lose him for an extended period anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is a factor as well, isn't it? In, in terms of reliance on him or whatever you want to yeah. call it, you know? Or um, how quickly you look to reintegrate him. You know, do you think, well, let's use him while we can or... Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we do have a number of games. I mean, we've got a pretty hectic fixture list, you know? So yeah. I don't think you can cut your nose off to spite your face in in that sense. But like I said, it really does depend on the response from Aubameyang, how he takes... Like, if he feels aggrieved or hard done by, then this becomes a bigger issue, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I, it's it's another one of those... I think it's really interesting because... 
how many times down the years have we heard about the need to not coddle players and to instill some discipline and all of those kind of things. But whenever we sure. have incidents like this, they tend to be quite divisive in that, like, if it's your yeah, favorite, if it's your favorite player that's being disciplined, well, the manager's a prick. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. uh, or if it's a guy you don't care for too much, right on. You know, we need to see this. We need to see a bit more of this. Stop indulging these highly paid millionaires who think they can come and go and do what they please. You know, there's, it, it, these incidents are always going to be divisive depending on your, your point of view or your standing or who you like best simply when it comes down to the people involved. Yeah, and, and ultimately, I guess what... Um what response uh, the team produce and what results you get in that period. I mean, if Mikel Arteta had done this and Arsenal had failed to score against Southampton, you know, mm. I think the reaction would be very different. Um, yeah, it was like, a, they, like the North London derby last year where everyone's going, what the fuck are you doing? You know, how can yeah. you leave Matt? And we win the game. And in that sense, you know, it's, it worked out well for Arteta both times. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you um, do you think? Uh, let me just see because there were questions. Um, let me see if I can find one here. Bum bum bum. I can't re I can't find one. But uh, basically, do you think the captaincy is in any danger? I mean, again, we don't know at this point. But yeah. I've seen people say strip him of the captaincy and. Like, that's a difficult thing to do because, you know, a player, even if he's made a mistake, might feel that's super harsh. And the, the consequences of that kind of action can be, can be quite seismic in a way. Yeah, that's what I mean when I say this doesn't have to be massive. Yeah. It, you know, I, and I hope that everyone... Um, sort of his behaves like grown ups, and, and it and it doesn't get to that point. I, it's um, I, I do completely understand though why people make that suggestion. I mean, I do think it's an issue that if you're a manager who's quite exacting and has certain levels of standards, non-negotiables. Yeah, to use the phrase, then then I think your captain probably ought to be emblematic of that or at least setting mm. the standard i mean also that may be partly why the the punishment uh, or the the nature of the rebuke feels quite pronounced sometimes because you you probably do expect a high standard of your captain i mean i think i think we could probably all agree who actually wears the armband on the field doesn't matter that much but i guess it's these off field issues things like discipline where the captaincy does have certainly a symbolic value yeah um and actually, yeah, I, I think it does raise an interesting question about what Arteta does. I just, I think if he, if you know, the advantage of taking it off Aubameyang, if he could do it without it being hugely problematic, I think, um, I think this, there, there could potentially be, it could be an opportune moment in some respects because, you know, we were talking about is Aubameyang, well, we know he's going to be phased out of the team over the next 18 months, mm. probably, whatever happens. And is the captaincy, is the armband something that makes doing that more difficult or certainly more of a story than it might otherwise yeah. be? Yeah, I mean, I've seen people suggest that it might be um, liberating for him in some ways. Ah, not to have to deal with that, you know, and, and concentrate in these last, 
whatever amount of time he's got left with the club, 18 months on his deal, just concentrate on being a goal scorer, which of course has been an issue this season. So I don't know. I just don't know how you What can... would you do? Uh, it, it absolutely depends on the response. It right. depends on what the conversation between Arteta and Aubameyang is uh, and has been over the last couple of days. You know, like I said, if he if he says, look, you said this, I did this, by the letter of the law, I was wrong. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with you, but let's just put this and make this water under the bridge and let's go for it. Then I don't know that you can take the captaincy from him. I don't think I don't think the offense is so egregious that he deserves to be. I mean, there's a humiliation is the wrong word, but I think if you are a 32 year old player and you're the captain of a football club and you are stripped of the captaincy, that is uh, that's a difficult thing to deal with. And I don't feel like right now coming back late from a trip is necessarily sufficient to take the captaincy away from him. But like shame because all, all the questions we've got about who should or about who should be captain. Well, let's, <laughs> let's just do that one. Like, like I mean, well, we don't have to. We don't have to uh, suggest that's happening. But Jonathan Down, for example, who's at Downster Thirty Two, says if Aubameyang loses his captaincy, who would you like to receive it, and who do you expect to get it? He said personally, I'm up for Ramsdale. Yeah, I've seen a lot of support for that, um, and and you can understand why. I think given the type of character he is. But I think the question is, I don't know, is it early? It feels quite early for, for Ramsdale, yeah, don't you think? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do it, to be honest. Um, I, you know, I think he's been absolutely brilliant and uh, fast becoming my, my favourite player and favourite character in the team um, for very obvious reasons, I'm sure. I don't need to explain to anybody. You just need to watch him. Um, but... It does feel like an unnecessary level of pressure to put on a goalkeeper, a young goalkeeper yeah. at that as well. I'm not sure goalkeeper is is the right position for your captain either. Like on, on an ad hoc basis, yeah, sure you can do it, but I wouldn't have your your goalkeeper as your captain as a matter of course if you could if you had better uh, options. Yeah, I do think. I'm not sure he needs it at this point in his uh, trajectory. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned Young. On the subject of Ramsdale, I, I do... I, I tweeted about this after the game, but he's only 23. It is, it is quite amazing, really, when you think how far he is from a supposed goalkeeper's peak. I think even if he is in a purple patch of form right now, uh, it's very heartening to think that you would expect his general level to improve um, substantially over the next years. And maybe when he's a bit older, a bit more mature, I think he would be a candidate. Mm. He's certainly someone who you would have as part of your leadership group. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Which I think is how these things tend to work anyway. So other candidates, um, well, Shaka, well, I think you can't go back to. No. Do you agree on that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no chance. Uh, no chance. And again, that would feel like a, a sort of retrograde Step, You know, we, we've yeah. been there, done that, worn the T-shirt for whatever it was, about five hours that he was the captain before it all, <laughs> all went tits up. Yeah. Uh, so, no, I mean, the two that stand out for me are Martin Odegaard and Kieran Tierney. Mm -hmm. They're the mm -hmm. two that I really think um, would be the best fit. But, you know, with regards both of them, look, I think Odegaard has played himself back into the team 
as one of the first choice players over the last True. few games. I think he absolutely has. They were both out of the yeah. team for quite a protracted period this season. Yeah. So that's a slight complicating factor. Then do you think about one of your central defenders? Um, I mean, I, yeah, I think you've got to throw... I, I would definitely throw Gabriel into the mix, I have to say. Just because of the way he plays mm. on the pitch, um, he does lead by example in that respect. And I, and I think he deserves to be in the in the conversation, as I say. Sure. Sure. Um, Although, speaking of conversation, I mean, some would say his language <laughs> a barrier. I don't know. Yeah, it might be. I don't know how good it is. I know his English has improved, but... It has improved. You know, is it sufficient? Um, again, he's quite young as well. I mean, Odegaard's 22, but he's captain of Norway already. Kieran Tierney, a bit more experienced than than the others. Um, so they're the ones that, that really stick out for me, you know? Um, mm. Because, again... When you think about first choice players, it's t- too early for Saka. It's too early for Smith Rowe. I'm not sure they're those characters quite yet. Anyway, you know. No. So, Partey, I think you know. Similarly, I don't think it's the type really. Um, yeah, I think I think we've we've covered the options. Mm. Um, I mean, Lacazette had it at the weekend, didn't he? But again. He's not really part of the long-term future. You don't know how many minutes he's going to play. I don't think that's really uh, a serious long-term consideration. But I, my personal belief is it won't come to that. I think that there are grievances on both sides. I think Arsenal's are obvious in terms of the agreement being broken. I think Aubameyang is a proud uh, man. I imagine will not have appreciated the public nature of this and what it does to him and his reputation. But I hope that because they both have grievances, they can kind of agree to settle them. Um, And I think what we know about Aubameyang suggests that in general, that is what happens. You know, he had a fallout with Thomas Tuchel at Dortmund and was disciplined and then they got over it. And I think maybe I'm just being an optimist, but I I think that is where this will go. I, I, that doesn't, for me, end the debate about are we getting enough from him? Was it a good idea to do mm. the contract? Has it been, you know, a success? All that's still valid. But I do think removing the armband could turn um, yeah. this molehill into quite the mountain. I, I fully agree. Fully agree. Okay, well, look, we've done nearly half an hour on that whole situation. So let's bang through a few uh, questions, will we? Um, Let's do it, yeah. Let me see. Uh, I have one here. Um, Well, I did have one, and now I can't find it. Yes, I've got it here. It comes from G. Justum, who's at Justum underscore Gooner, or Just Ham underscore Gooner. I don't know if it's just ham or just him. Anyway, he says, with him being so key to how we're trying to play, can you discuss how he would solve losing slash resting someone like Tommy Asu in a busy schedule he's not used to? Uh, any thoughts on Tavares playing there? Well, he came on in that position, didn't he? Yeah. Um, as we mentioned against Brentford. Uh, I I have to be honest, it would make me uneasy. It's one of those football things like two left-footed centre-backs that for no real reason, a left-footed right-back makes me feel more uncomfortable than a right-footed left-back. <laughs> um, I, I, and I, in fact, I say for no real reason, there is a reason. The reason is that typically 
left-footed players are... Um, very one-footed? Very one-footed. In general, they are more. there is more of uh, an emphasis on mm. one foot because they're asked to do it less, you know, because they're sort of specialists. Tavares is not one of those. He, he really is... Um, uh, quite two-footed, uh, as is Tomiyasu. So uh, it's an option. I do think that right-back is an area that Arsenal will have to address in the transfer market before too long. We we know the big areas of kind of um, central midfielder, centre-forward. I think we could probably sense at some point they're going to need another goalkeeper. I think right-back is something they need to do something about because the difference in quality and style mm. between Tommy Asu and the available alternatives feels quite uh, stark right now. Mm. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it is one of those. It's a bit like Tierney last season, isn't it? You know. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we we had a small conversation about Tommy Asu over WhatsApp at the weekend. I, I really like him. Um, Same. Yeah. He reminds me um, of Bakary Sanya. Just mm-hmm. in terms of the the reliability that he gives you, the defensive security that a player like that brings to a team. Like how many times did Sanya make those tackles or those clearances or win those headers? You know, and Tommy Asu is is very much the same in that regard for me. So when you think about the options, I mean, Callum Chambers is probably the closest facsimile to Tommy Asu. He is, but. Can't get on the bench. Can't even get on the bench uh, these days. Cedric, a bit more of a traditional sort of a fullback, and I suppose he is the guy that we're going to have to um, rely on or mm-hmm. use as and when we need to rest Tommy. So, um, it's yeah, like you say, it's one of those good problems because he's come in and become immediately an important part of the, of the team. Um, I feel very secure with him I don't know how to explain it but do you ever like when you think about your team and you think you try and create a mental image of your team where it's strong where it's weak whatever it is I feel really secure with Tommy Asu when I think about um, Arsenal down that right hand side and he seems to work pretty well with Bakayo Saka as well and got a good relationship so it is going to be one of those where we're going to have to do without him for a game or two along the way um but yeah, we have what we have Hopefully at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I was thinking about that the other day, how it doesn't feel too long ago that we had a weekly conversation on this podcast about Arsenal's dysfunctional right-hand side and how, you know, everything was going down the left and nothing clicked mm. on the right. And I think you're correct to point out that Tommy Asu and Saka have struck up uh, a really good partnership there and a good understanding I, I think Odegaard is part of that as well and I also think um, that although he is primarily a defensive player and that is certainly his strength I think in the last <clears throat> month or so we have seen a bit more adventure mm-hmm. from him and you know if you look at where he is when Lacazette scores that opening goal he's the guy making the run inside the penalty box towards the near post he's really charged right up the pitch he had a chance as well didn't he, he had one uh, keeper made a good save yeah I can't remember if it was and, and, a corner or was it a set piece I'm not sure and he, you know obviously he's not uh, Reese James or Trent Alexander-Arnold or anything like that but sometimes just the presence of a, a runner and a body can really uh, disturb or unbalance a defence he doesn't have to be um, 
you know, Cafu, but he was involved in uh, the goal for Odegaard as mm. well, putting the cross from the right-hand side. He's been involved in a few things on the attacking front going forward that suggest that, you know, there is more to him, I think, than, than purely yeah. um, a defender. And his passes in the build-up to the first goal as well demonstrate that. So, yeah, he's been yeah. really, really good. Okay. Um, here is a question from the Discord, and it's from Stickers. And Stickers says, compared to Friday... How optimistic are you the club signs a striker in January? I guess what they mean is, does what's happened with Aubameyang change your thoughts on what, whether anything might happen in January with the striker situation? I, I genuinely don't know. I don't know. Um, like, who's available, who's going to be available in January? Mm-hmm. Um I think I said this on the, whether it was on Friday or the last time we were talking, I wouldn't be a hundred percent surprised, hugely surprised if we signed someone in January. Mm. But I, I like, I've got no information or no rumors. I mean, there's a lot of names doing the rounds. We had a question, um, another one on Twitter, um, Calv, who's at Cumbrian Calv. What are your takes on the Kulisevsky and Vlaovic rumors? Are they two players we need? Um, there was another one on the Discord as well uh, from Oliver Wood GK, who basically is saying, look, uh, we're only two points off fourth. We could move into the top four if we beat West Ham. Depends on what happens with Manchester United and Brentford. True. That game might not go ahead. Um, but, you know, we could go into the top four and he's asking, you know, do you think we could make a signing in January to really push for a Champions League place, which it must be part of the thinking. Surely, you know, if they're planning on a striker next summer, which I, I've got to think they are. Certainly, yeah. If they recognize that we're having some goal scoring issues with the strikers that we have, you know, do they stick or twist in that regard? Do they bank on the experience of Aubameyang and Lacazette being able to get us enough goals between now and May? Or do they say, you know what, we're in a decent position here, maybe, maybe, maybe we push the boat out a bit now and get, get a player in who can who can really add something to the team in January? So, mm. I don't know. And, th- and, and plans can change quite fast, you know. Um <sighs> either an opportunity comes up or you do have a fallout with a player and it's difficult to reintegrate them in the team. I mean, that that would sort of, if things got really bad between Aubameyang and the manager, that would sort of necessitate, I think, uh, a new striker. Mm. I don't think we're in that place necessarily right now. Um, on those names, Vlavic, I think, is, of course, is interesting. His goal record is outstanding at the present time. Uh, I wrote in a piece for Athletic recently that there is a sense that maybe he his intention is to stay in Italy and that some of these clubs in Europe are being used uh, as a way of Fiorentina ensuring they get the most money they can for him um, so I don't know how plausible that one is that Kulisevsky and I might be pronouncing that wrong, uh, one wrong I think it's really interesting because he's a guy who he's a left footed um, kind of attacking midfield player who operates uh, a lot from the right-hand side, but has played through the middle, has played on the left. I think he might have even played up top once or twice. And he he's definitely a player um, that Arsenal admire, mm. but 
I think at the present time with Bukayo Saka and Nicola Pepe both looking to play in those areas, I don't know how I don't know how much room there would be for him. Yeah. Um I, I you know, if Pepe were to move on, I think that would certainly be one to watch, you know. Here's a couple while we're talking about strikers uh, from the Discord. Arsenal Vision Podcast, whoever the fuck that is, said, uh, let's say Lacazette picks up an injury during the period when Aubameyang is gone uh, or just on the naughty step. He's talking about going to the AFCON. Um, Who would you prefer we use up front and who do you think Mikel Arteta would rely on? And then there's another one here from our own Lego-haired Jesus on the Discord. He said, with the issues around Aubameyang's form and recent disciplinary indiscretions and having Arteta preferred options, uh, Arteta's preferred options on the wings are Saka, Martinelli, Smith-Rowe, is it worth experimenting with Pepe through the middle as a striker? And that's a question that's been popping up a little bit over the last few weeks. I've been meaning to ask you about it, so. Yeah, and, I, and I'm in two minds. I mean, you know when we when we were so poor against Everton, you know we had a chat on here and we were saying it's weird Pepe's not getting involved. He's a goal scorer and you know he does he does make things happen. But by the same token, there is another part of me that's like I think we should also be careful to not make the players who aren't playing the solution. I think we've I, I personally think we might be at the point where we've seen enough from Pepe to know that he, his imperfections are substantial. Um, and I don't know about the centre-forward thing. I mean, Bielsa tried it, right? That was when Pepe first went to Lille, I believe it was. Mm. That was the intention for him to be a centre-forward. Um, but uh, it didn't work out. Obviously, years have passed since then. Football's changed. Pepe's changed. I mean, I would give it a go, I guess. But But they have plenty of time to look at things like this in training. And who knows? Maybe they have. Uh, do you think it's something worth trying, or does it file alongside kind of Kalatoria midfield that kind of thing? <laughs> Not quite that, but I don't think. I don't. I just don't think it's likely. If Nicolas Pepe can't get a game in his in inverted commas natural position, or one of his natural positions, I just don't know that unless there was an emergency of some kind, he would get a, a start in a position he's never played in for us. You know what I mean? So I don't see Arteta repurposing Pepe as a striker. I'm curious. Like, I would be curious. I mean, if, if, he, if he played it in the, in the Carabao Cup game, I mean, there's probably yeah. a little bit of room for experimentation there, but you've also got Nketiah, who will probably be in the mix. Maybe Balagoon should be in the mix. I think he absolutely should be in the mix for that game, you know, to give him some first-team minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, I don't know. I mean, Pepe played from the right-hand side in that game, so I don't know. I think he will. I think he will play from the right. I'm curious, but like you, I don't necessarily see the opportunity. I think if we were still playing... Aubameyang and Lacazette in the team together mm. you know and you had that kind of withdrawn striker role that Lacazette was doing I do think Pepe might have had a better chance there um, what was the first question the first question is like Aubameyang's gone uh, yeah. either to the AFCON or he's you know um, confined to his room he's not allowed sure. out he's grounded he's on the naughty step he's grounded yeah. um, and Lacazette picks up an injury 
who who gets the nod? Well, I think it would be Eddie. I think we'd have to assume Eddie. And like you, I thought there was a chance that he might play at the weekend. I have to be honest and say, I don't fully get it. Like, I don't fully understand what the plan is for Eddie and Balogun. No, um, me neither. Because uh, Arteta does appear pretty insistent. I mean, if he's if he's if he's kidding Eddie on about wanting him to sign a new contract, he's really taken the joke quite far. Um, <laughs> and I I don't think Eddie's as bad as a lot of Arsenal fans do. I think he's a very I think he could be a very decent centre forward, someone who has the potential to be a squad option for Arsenal and have a value coming off the bench uh, in the coming mm. years. But I don't necessarily understand how you accommodate him and Balogun in the same squad. The closest I can get to it is, do they think Lacazette's going to leave this summer? Aubameyang's going to leave next summer? Um, at some point, a new striker will be added and, the, and Eddie and Balogun will make up the the trio. Yeah. You know what, though? I don't, you know, for all the things that Mikel Arteta is talking about, you know, he wants Eddie to stay. They're talking with his agent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Like, if you're Eddie right now, you're 22 years of age, you want to play regular football, you're going to go, particularly when you've got a Bosman, you know, in, yeah. in the summer. You're, you're going to go because Arsenal are not going to say, okay, it's time for you to take the mantle as our first choice striker. We guarantee you mm. X amount of playing time. I mean if we all can see that Arsenal need to go into the market for a striker, so can the players. So at best, Eddie might be the second choice striker in a year's time. Mm. And I just, I just don't know how you convince a young player who feels like he wants to go and play week in, week out, to commit to a deal which in all likelihood is not going to give him that. Like if we accept that this is not a money thing for Nkedia, it's about playing regularly, how on earth do Arsenal convince him to do that? And, and why are we trying? Yeah, and also from his perspective, we may not like this reality, but Arsenal isn't quite what it was. You know, it's not like if he plays 10 games off the bench, he might get a league winner's medal next season. It, it, he, you know, could he get a move to a club that might be able to offer him Europa League football or Europa Conference football? Probably, yeah, mm. in Germany or France or anywhere, maybe even in England. So I think he'll have options. And I think he, I kind of think he would be mad not to, take them um so yeah I, I think eddie is the is the guy arteta would play i'm just saying i don't fully understand that that situation and, and no the overall situation there. in those circumstances i could see why he would choose eddie because he's probably the most uh the next senior player balagoon big talent but you know we're going to have to stick him out on loan aren't we uh, in January and that appears to be the plan that he's going to go on loan so um, yeah yeah it might be a case that he goes at the end of the month to give us cover for Aubameyang but mm, yeah maybe. we will we will see can uh, you just give me one second Andrew just got to pop out and deal with the dog thing I'll be yeah yeah one second 20 seconds yeah no one problem second. 
Sorry about that. No problem whatsoever. She was chewing her paw, and I could tell from the sound. And it's very bad for her. Oh, a bit of anxiety behaviour, separation anxiety behaviour kind of thing. Yeah, yeah and also, like, I, I think... Uh, but it's this vicious cycle, Andrew. If you start chewing your paw, it gets all inflamed. You chew it more. You've got to wear the cone of shame. You've got to wear the cone of shame. And nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Right. So Let, I've intervened. Okay, good. Let's do a couple of quick ones to go because uh, we should get this out. Um, a couple on, on COVID... Ross Whittaker TV, at Ross Whittaker TV, says, if Munster Rugby can go ahead and play a fixture with something like 30 players unavailable due to COVID, why can't Spurs play without eight? And DB10 fan club, who's at Duncan Johnson 72, he said, uh, okay, COVID, surely if you can get a team out of your first team squad, then you should play. I accept if you're missing support staff, it might make it difficult, but why have a squad if you don't use it? This is obviously in the spotlight because, um, you know, there's a lot of it going around. Um, Spurs mm -hmm. game against Brighton was called off and they had their Europa Conference League game against, um, who is it, Wren? I think called off last week as well because of COVID cases. So, um, yeah, just some brief thoughts on what's going on there. And, um, you know, United, we already mentioned, might be called off tomorrow night because they've got COVID cases. Aston Villa have had COVID cases. So, yeah, it's complicated. I mean, I Football's going to have to really think about what the parameters are within which they're prepared to cancel or continue because with COVID spreading like it is in the UK um, and with training grounds being a sort of natural uh, site for it to spread as much as they may uh, work against that, mm. they need to be careful because if we start calling off games left, right and centre, um, schedule's going to be in big trouble and next year's football calendar is already pretty yeah. tight due to the World Cup yeah, yeah, yeah. at the end of the year. Um, so I don't know is the short answer what to do. I think Arsenal will feel probably a bit frustrated that their game against Brentford obviously went ahead and they suffered with the results. I mean, that's another question. You know, is is this going to be fair how they decide what is and isn't permissible? Mm. Um, well, I mean, that was, that was an interesting part of the press conference on Friday where... Mikel Arteta was asked about it and you know it comes up because of what happened on the opening day of the season with our game against Brentford we'd four cases we couldn't we tried to get the game called off but weren't allowed but it's amazing to me that here we are in December with everything that we know and there aren't defined parameters as to you know how how many cases are required in inverted commas for a game to be called off nobody seems to know what the threshold is and that must make it very difficult for clubs to um you know to know how to proceed in certain cases to know what they need to do in terms of their own safety precautions and everything else but a sense that rules are being made up on the spot or are arbitrarily enforced depending on you know one week to the next what's considered serious and not serious that doesn't strike me as as something that's being well managed by the premier league yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, Arsenal, I know, have recently upped their precautions against COVID again. I think the um, protocols for the players have been uh, tightened, shall we say, mm. just because, you know, they can see this coming, as we all can. Um, yeah, I, uh, I fear that we may have quite a disruptive uh, winter schedule um, mm. in the Premier League 
the, the way things are going. But let's see. Yeah, let's see. Fingers hopefully crossed. Oh, yeah, hopefully not. And, and obviously, um, the health of anybody who's infected uh, and those around them is is of paramount importance. So Absolutely. fingers crossed everybody is uh, remains safe and well. One very final one. I think we've got to do Go this on. one because it, it takes us out very nicely. Uh, Ashley Moss, who's at Ashley Moss 4, says, since it's Santi Cazorla's birthday today, what, were you, what would you say were his top three moments in an Arsenal shirt? Wow. I, I, I mean, I think... Th- the one that stands out to me immediately straight away is the free kick in the FA Cup final. Yeah. <clears throat> that was just such an important goal that gave Arsenal a lifeline in a game that was really turning into a nightmare for them. Um, mm. Can I can I um, su- suggest one? Oh, please, yeah. There was the... I know it's only a very small thing, but Santi Cazorla is lining up to take a corner. Lauren Koscielny gives him like a... And a whistle and a, a little uh, signal with his hand, and he went and took it with his other foot. I think he was lining up to take it right-footed, and then produced an in-swinger with his left foot. Just yeah, unbelievable, unbelievable that a player has the technical ability to do that. Um, I think that I mean, there's probably countless moments we could mention. I mean, for me, there was one particularly um, impressive slaloming run that came in that famous game at Manchester City uh, where he sort of picked the ball up on the edge of his own box. And I think that might have been the first time or one of the first times he played in central midfield for Arsenal in that kind of deeper role. And it was just extraordinary. You know, we we were used to, we had sort of the image of Patrick Vieira Mm. burnt onto our retina, him striding through the midfield. And then this guy who was completely physically distinct and different, but doing it in his own fashion. Um, I think in his own way, he is as irreplaceable. He really was a complete one-off Santi Cazorla. And we've mm. not seen many players in the Premier League quite like him. No, it's it's like the, the technical level he had was just unbelievable. And it's such a shame that his career at Arsenal finished the way that it did, you know, with that injury. Definitely. And it was great to see him recover from that and to go back to Villarreal and have success there and and enjoy football again after what was a hugely um, traumatic injury and, and everything else. So, yeah, he's just uh, one of the good guys, isn't he? So He is. Happy birthday, Santi. Happy birthday to you. There's another good video, one of those videos that they do where he was um, pretending to cook things and be Australian. Do you remember that video? <laughs> yeah, going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Could I, mate? And he's That's very yeah, funny. in his Spanish Australian accent, which is quite something to behold. Anyway, look, <laughs> <laughs> let's leave it there. I can hear Belle snoring away there. So uh, yeah, yeah, she's snoring away. She's now. snoring away. She's so, forgotten about the pause. Everything's right with the world. Okay, we will be here on Thursday um, to talk about whatever happens in the West Ham game. Lewis and I will preview the West Ham game on Patreon tomorrow. Join us for that. For now, though, thanks a million as always for being here, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye bye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.